from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Today's hour-long version of Craft explores the theme of giving thanks and focuses on some of the things that I'm thankful for, like the music of Lorena McKennett, the guest authors with the Thurber House, like Craig Johnson, and historical perspective on this year's election brought to you by History Talk from The Ohio State University and the lively performing arts scene in Central Ohio with my talk with the founders of The Nest Theater. I'm also thankful for the more than a dozen craft listeners who responded to my call and told me what they were thankful for this fall. You'll hear them throughout the show. These folks have taken time to look beyond the chaos and divisiveness we've seen so much of lately and focus on what's positive in their lives. I hope that by hearing what makes other people thankful, you'll be able to become more positive about some of the things in your life that are going well and have some moments of happiness or satisfaction. I'm grateful for many things in my life, like my family, my house, my ability to pick up objects with my feet. I'm also thankful for the music of Lorena McKennett, who was in town recently with Kappa. Welcome to Craft, Lorena McKennett. Thank you. It's a great uh, to join you. <laughs> I've listened to your music for years and, and very much enjoy it. And uh, one of my favorite pieces that you've written is Dante's Prayer. Okay, thank you. It starts with a really beautiful choral arrangement, which is uh, perhaps an odd thing for me to say, as I don't usually like choirs. <laughs> what feedback mm-hmm. have you gotten about that song? Well, the feedback has been quite strong. Um, I mean, the lead up to that, that uh, sort of assembling that choir with that piece, uh, it's sort of a shaggy dog story. <laughs> I was traveling across uh, Siberia uh, on by train from Vladivostok to Moscow on my own in December of '95, and part of what led me to that part of the world was that I had heard or had read, actually, that the Celts had been inspired to, their passion for horses had begun in the Russian steppes. I had been traveling with um, the chieftains uh, in Japan, and I thought, well, this might be my only chance to uh, travel in Russia. So um, I wrote most of the lyrics of that song while on that train, um, and it was also in that winter when I came back home to Canada, early in the morning, I would turn on a, a classical music program and I happened to have heard this particular piece by the St. Petersburg Choir. And I thought, wow, that is so powerful. And it seemed, at least in my mind, to, um, logical to connect that Russian choir with this piece that I had actually written uh, uh, during uh, my trip across Siberia. And all the paths were overgrown. When the breeze of pride say there is no other way. Is that a common thing for you to start the lyrics first and then? Um, work through the music? Do they go hand in hand? How does that work for you? There doesn't seem to be any uh, predictable or set way that it occurs for me. Sometimes there, I would uh, begin with that, that there's a sentiment or there's a story or there's images that I definitely want to capture and I start rendering those into lyrics and then I try to uh, play around with melodies that won't fit the meter of those lyrics. Other times, however, there's just a melody that comes to my mind and I don't have 
anything really in, in mind except that this melody has just uh, developed, then I have to kind of in, reverse the process and say, well, what does this melody speak to me? Uh, how, what, what, what does it imply? What direction should I... What content should I match it with? So it, it, it can ha- happen either way. Okay. Now, you've also written a song called Skellig uh, that tells the story of a monk. What grew, drew you to the story? Well, I read uh, a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. What was Thomas Cahill? And it was, so uh, this was a part of Irish history that I was not so familiar with, and that was how these monks had traveled from Ireland to Italy, uh, and then uh, after the, the sort of dark ages, they came back to Ireland with a lot of the classical books. And there, Thomas Garhill is one academic who argues that had it not been for those monks coming back to Ireland with all these classical books, those, they, they would have been lost. And I just wanted to show a, a little spotlight on to uh, the, the, that micro world of, of monks uh, also creating these illuminated manuscripts um, and where they searched uh, far and wide for the various ingredients that would uh, uh, create the colors and the dynamics in, in, in the books. So it was that, that was really the, the backstory on that piece. Well, light the candle, John The daylight has almost gone You've traveled extensively to research your music. Have you done traveling lately to explore new kinds of music? Well, the most recent uh, research trip was a few years ago to Rajasthan in northern India. Um, Where this all really began, pardon me, was when I attended an exhibition in Venice. That was the most extensive exhibition ever assembled on the Celts. And this was in 1991, I believe. And I realized that the, that as a result of that exhibition, that the Celts were really this vast collection of tribes that had fanned out across Europe and into Asia Minor, and they uh, dated back to about 500 BC. So since 91, I wanted to travel to a lot of those geographical places where those Celtic tribes had been. Uh, straight across Europe into Greece, into Turkey, um, up to uh, even the northwest corner of China, which has a museum where there are uh, mummies with red hair, and they date back to about 1000 BC, about 500 years before the Celts were identified. But um, uh, I also, in the language uh, that uh, these people, these red-haired mummies, <laughs> these people would have spoken. Um, it's called Tukarian, and the Celtic languages uh, sat on one end of the Indo-European group of languages, and the Tukarian sat on the other side of the spectrum. And there are a lot of uh, suggested connections with the north of India, of uh, the very, very earliest Celts. So that was the last trip I'd taken. Uh, we've been on a fairly steady uh, drill of touring since then, so I haven't really made considerable progress in uh, creating the next chapter, shall we say, of the history of the Celts mm-hmm. with that, but um, I'm, I'm still hopeful. <laughs> 
Well, as somebody who's not particularly well-versed in his past and is also red-haired, or a few years ago I had red hair, um, you know, I'll have to look in to see whether I'm one of this lo- a lost tribe of Celtic people. <laughs> you have a, a, a wide and eclectic mix of instruments on your albums. Does this cause trouble for you when you are going on a tour like this? How, do you have a, a massive a number of instruments that have to travel with you? Well, when I'm traveling with a band, uh, and that can get to be as large as eight or, eight or so people, uh, on this tour, I'm traveling with just two other musicians. Um, but it does, it does, you're absolutely right, it does make it challenging to express that part of the, the musical fabric um, because you, know, you, you need that number of people who play those number and those kinds of instruments to really fully replicate what people are hearing on the recordings. Um, on, this, on this tour, um, the, focal, the, the focal point really is more the stories and my travels behind the songs, and, um, and it's, it's less uh, executing this broad spectrum of textual uh, elements from hurdy-gurdies or comanches. <laughs> I think this uh, fall is the perfect time to listen to your music. And uh, it just seems to me that that's when it really, when I start really listening to it a lot more. Lorena McKinnett, thank you again for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Hi, I am Margaret Peterson Haddix, the author of Children of Exile and lots of other books. And I am very thankful to have a job where I get to hang out with kids a lot. I'm thankful for all the exuberance, wonder, hope, and fun that kids bring to the world. I'm Elaine grogan Luttrell, and I am thankful to be surrounded every day by people who are really, truly great at what they do. There's something beautiful about excellence, and I love seeing it in my colleagues, my family, my students, and my daughter. I'm so lucky to know such incredible people. Hi, Craft the Podcast. This is Rebecca Flowers in Clintonville. This year, I am particularly grateful for the musical legacies of Prince, David Bowie, and Leonard Cohen, the body, the mind, and the soul. And of course, for WCBE, thanks for all you guys do. Have a great Thanksgiving, and don't forget to lock up your guns. Author Craig Johnson is the creator of the Walt Longmire series, which has become a successful television series now on Netflix. His latest novel, the 12th in the series, is An Obvious Fact. Welcome to Craft, Craig Johnson. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on the success of the novels and the TV series. They're going really well. It is, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's been kind of astounding. Every once in a while, somebody will ask me, they'll say, well, did you suspect you know, that the you know, books would you know, lodge themselves on the New York Times bestsellers list and be translated into 12 languages? I'll get and have a you know, hit TV series and all this and my, my immediate response to that is if i was looking for a demographic maybe doing a procedural in the least populated county in the least populated state in america probably was a bad idea right yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to to get followers uh out of the demographic uh, which you're writing so it you, is it is thank goodness it appeals you know outside its realm thank right goodness. yeah well you know westerns uh cowboy hats all that stuff you know we it's, it's part of the 
American background, right? So there's hey, so much. Hey, Roy of it Rogers that's... was from Ohio, for gosh sakes. So <laughs> it, uh, it, it's everywhere, you know, whether you not, like it or not. <laughs> I did not know he was from Ohio. Yes, that's, that's... yes, he was. Well, uh, another proud moment for Ohio. <laughs> um, so you've got two dozen books now in this series. How do you keep it fresh for yourself when you go back? What keeps drawing you back to these characters? Well, just one dozen. Well, just one dozen books. Um, let's see, it's uh, twelve novels, two novellas, and uh, a collection of short stories. Um, but I, I don't know. In many ways, I think it's the same thing that draws people into reading the books. You know, a lot of it has to do with Walt. Um, he, he tends to be, you know, a little bit different from a lot of the protagonists that you tend to see um, in crime fiction, who tend to be the, you know, six foot two of twisted steel and sex appeal kind of guys. Like, and uh, you know, going at odds a little bit maybe with Robert Taylor playing the role of Walt Longmire on Netflix. Like, at Walt's a little bit more like all of us. He's what I tend to refer to as over. Um, he's overweight, he's overage, he's overly depressed, you know, but he, he still gets up in the morning and tries to do the job. And to me, that's, you know, that's a character that's you know, it's truly heroic and, and worth following around. And, you know, he deals with a lot of issues in his life, and one of the ways that he deals with a lot of those issues is with a sense of humor. Um, there's a lot of humor, you know, in the books. They're written in first person, and so, you know, you're pretty much in Walt's head, you know, for 350, 400 pages. And uh, very early on, I decided, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to be in this guy's head, you know, for 350 pages, he better be, be smart, he better be funny, um, he better have, you know, a real genuine, you know, emotional attachment, you know, to the, the people whose laws he's enforcing, you know, he better be just, he better be kind, you know, he better have all of those things that, you know, that I, I would hope, you know, that, um, you know, that someone in law enforcement, you know, would carry, sort of philosophy. Mm-hmm. So do you get responses from some of the people that you've talked to about your depiction of police work and procedurals after the books come out where they say, well, I really like this, but hey, you, you didn't get this right or something like that? Oh, absolutely. Like it's, uh, I, I, you know, the majority of law enforcement knows that, you know, that when you're doing something like books or you're doing television, um, you know, most generally there are going to be some things that are going to be, you know, slightly different, you know, than reality, um, simply because it is a dramatic presentation, you know, of what exactly it is that you're doing. Um, you know, one of the ones that I get an awful lot of the times, you know, from, uh, you know, it's generally, it's not from law enforcement. It's, it's just from like, you know, people who like to nitpick, uh, is that, you know, Walt always, you know, carries his 45. Uh, Colt, you know, 1911, um, you know, with the hammer down rather than cocked and locked, which is generally the the procedure where you have it already cocked and have the safety on it, just switch the safety off. You know, well, the problem with that, of course, is that it robs you of the dramatic steps of having Walt A pull the gun, B, you know, pull the hammer back, and then you know, C, inevitably, like you know, pull the trigger. But nonetheless, you know, it allows for a couple of steps of the drama uh, that you know maybe in real life you you try and avoid. But uh, you know, generally, it's not. Long Law enforcement, though, that has problems with those type of things. Like, uh, generally, they they understand and, and really enjoy um, certainly the books. Like, that's simply because you know Walt kind of approaches the job in a very um, realistic manner. Um, you know, and they they know that the things that you deal with on a day to day basis, you know, are uh, maybe a little closer akin in the books than a lot of the stuff you know where somebody's trying to blow up the nuclear power plant or something like that. You know, they they deal with a lot of the same things. You know, that a lot of uh, law enforcement, you know, certainly in the in the uh, the high plains American West, you know, the Northern Rocky Mountain region do. Mm-hmm. So after you'd written all of these books and, and trying to hew closely to uh, reality, what kinds of things did you notice in the say the TV show that might have brought out elements of the book 
that you didn't expect or that you hadn't uh, thought of before? How did that oh, transfer there, change? There were tons, there were tons of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, people generally ask, they say, well, what's it like to have, uh, you know, w- your writings, you know, suddenly, you know, up on the screen and, uh, and all of that. And the only way that I can describe it is in many ways, it's kind of like having a, a house plant in your home for like seven or eight years and then suddenly having it start talking to you. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's very, very wonderful, but very strange and w- weird at the same time. But, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, there were all kinds of things like that that had to be kind of adjusted, you know, whenever the, the, the books um, started making uh, being made into a television show by Warner Brothers and, and especially on Netflix. Um, some of the things that were kind of interesting was, uh, you know, because in the books, you know, Walt is a Vietnam veteran. Um, both he and Henry are, are, are vets uh, from the Vietnam War. And uh, one of the things that you know, the producers told me right off the bat was they said, you know, well, we're thinking about making Walt and Henry um, uh, about 10 years younger than they are in the books. And I, I had the immediate, you know, redneck cowboy author response where I was like, well, now why are we doing that? And their response was, well, because we'd like the show to run for about 10 years and we'd rather not have Walt and Henry on walkers by the time we get to the end of the run, you know. And so I, I had a hard time arguing that point. Um, and then, you know, some other things that, you know, that they've done that have been, you know, slightly different, you know, it, it goes on and on. Um, you know, the, the, the casting of the show, um, they actually had me involved um, with the casting, you know, and picking out uh, the actors. And uh, generally, when when people ask me what's the biggest difference between the books and the television show, my immediate response is everybody in the show is a lot better looking than the people I had in mind in my head. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just a, a Hollywood thing, I'm afraid. Right. Is it usual for authors uh, in situations like you are to pick the or to have a voice in the picking of the cast? That sounds like uh, unusual to me. I, I, I guess I'm not familiar with people having that, that opportunity. It must have been a great opportunity. No, you're absolutely right. Most generally, Hollywood does not care what the novelist has to say about how they're going to cast the television show or the movie. Generally, what they want to do is give you your check and get rid of you as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of speaks well, you know, to the producers uh, um, for Longmire, you know, that they had me involved. Um, you know, with the process, okay, and uh, and they they as a creative consultant, what they do is they send me the scripts, and I go through the scripts, you know, and uh, and give them feedback on them. I mean, and there are things obviously that we agree on, things that we don't dis- that we don't agree on, but as a general rule, they've been extraordinarily you know respectful to you know the, the whole idea and the tone and the feel of the books, which I think is what it is that they're you know desperate to try and uh, and capture. Um, you know, one of the things you know you you, you kind of have to come to you know uh, to terms with you know very quickly whenever you're dealing with Hollywood, especially if your books are being made into a television series, is, is that they're going to go through your material at an extraordinary rate. Um, with the new season of Longmire uh, debuting on Netflix here a couple of weeks back, um, they now have 53 episodes of Longmire. I've only written 12 novels. And so, you know, all of my material, you know, they, they've, they've used an awful lot of the material that they wanted to um, from those. And so they kind of have to be able to go off, you know, in a different uh, trajectory, so to speak, you know, because, you know, their trajectory is going to be very different from mine in the sense that, you know, if the show runs for about 10 years, that's 10 seasons, you know, with about 10 episodes per season, um, which is a different dynamic than me, where I'm going to have at least, you know, one Walt Longmire book, you know, hopefully, you know, until I, till I croak it, you know, here in about 30 years. Okay. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just a different arc, I think. Um, so whenever Hollywood does come knocking on your door, the one thing you have to be acknowledging uh, as an author is that, you know, the reason they're there is the characters. That's why they're there. Not so much the plot lines as much as it is the characters. Okay. I'll keep that in mind for when 
then they come knocking um, the twelfth of never. When absolutely, I actually, well, you never know. Yeah. Never know. Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one last question: When you go to places like the Thurber House, what kind of interactions do you get to experience with your fans? What do they say to you about the books? Well, generally, it's really kind of nice because the venue tends to be a little bit smaller, um, you know, and it's a little bit more intimate. Um, I think, okay, um, and I think that that you know that makes a big difference. And um, you know, because uh, since the television show, an awful lot of the, the 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 book events I tend to do tend to be in auditoriums or in theaters um, or offsite uh, from the bookstores because you know there's a certain amount of people that are there, you know, that are are there because they've discovered the books through the television show. And, you know, so the crowds tend to be a little bit bigger and it's, it's hard to be as intimate, you know, as you can be, um, in more literary circles. Like that. And that's, what's really kind of wonderful for me. I've been able to go to, um, you know, the Mark Twain house. I've been able to go to the Margaret Mitchell house. I'm looking so forward to doing the Thurber house like that, because these are all authors that, you know, that I you know, deeply respect. And, you know, it, generally that the, you know, the, the questions tend to be different. The audience tends to be a little bit different, and uh, and for me that's always exciting. Like to be talking to people who maybe have you know never heard of Walt Longmire, or you know have just started in that world um, of Walt Longmire, and uh, and have, have never seen me. And so it's it's something novel, something different, um, and still you know appeals to me on an aesthetic sense. Craig Johnson, thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Eva Dale, and I'm thankful for my thoughtful, fun-loving husband and our two delightful boys. I'm also thankful for a kind and generous circle of friends and family. Lastly, I'm thankful for the vibrant, energetic city of Columbus, Ohio. May you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And now a word from Nancy Petro. I'm thankful for becoming a grandparent with four precious grandsons, three years and under. My husband and I are grateful for our marriage and for my parents, ages 92 and 95, who've lived to see this fourth generation. This is Andrew Miller, and I'm thankful for Sunday mornings with my wife and daughter and our time together drawing, making up stories, playing Minecraft, and laughing. I'm especially thankful for having been so fortunate in life to have work, a roof over my head, and coffee in my cup. My hope is that I'm able to continue to help those who need it so they are able to find things to be thankful for, too. Happy Thanksgiving! Tara DeFrancisco and Rance Rizzuto are improv veterans and teachers. They recently relocated to Columbus from Chicago, and they've opened The Nest Theater, which is the first full-time improv space in Columbus, Ohio. More information about The Nest is available at nesttheater.com. Welcome to Craft, Tara and Rance. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey. Sure. Well, welcome to Columbus. Why Columbus? If you're in Chicago, what I think of as sort of the home of improv, and you look out and say, you know where we should go? Columbus. Well, first and foremost, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I, ah. I grew up here and moved away in the late 90s to go pursue a career in improv and met Rance around um, early 2000s. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, and uh, we, he came from Portland, Oregon, and um, we both we both sort of heard that Chicago was the mecca of improvisation and went there to study, and luckily both of us had very fortunate, positive careers there. We, we, we both performed at three of the fairly notorious improv theaters there, Comedy Sports, IO Chicago, and Second City, as well as were teachers for those institutions. Um, so we kind of did everything we wanted to do and, um, really enjoyed Chicago quite a bit, but knew there was 
a desire to kind of create this hub here in Columbus. There were lots of improvisers here that didn't have a dedicated space. And since we've been touring our show, Rance and I have a two person show called Hear the Musical, uh, which kind of uh, got really got very popular. And we've now been touring um, 17 countries so far. Yeah, 17. Yeah, and we realized we didn't really need to be anywhere specifically to tour. So it seemed like a good opportunity to go home. What's your take on why improv seems so popular in Columbus? Because as you mentioned, we do have, we don't, you're the first full-time, but we've got um, several other groups, some of which uh, have been on craft before and talked to me about improv. What, uh, is it this popular in every city that you've been to, or is Columbus on to something that uh, other places are not? I would dare say it is. <laughs> it is yeah. It's very popular, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of cities we've been to where... Uh, there are like 10 improvisers maybe total in the mm-hmm. whole city. And there are a couple cities that have been had an improv scene for a long time. And Columbus is kind of in this sweet spot where uh, there's just enough improvisers and just enough opportunities around where everyone can find a show to do here and there. Uh, and the thing we found is there's, there's uh, the spots they perform in are – spots that let them perform in them and not spots that are fully designated to improvisation. Yeah. And there's a high desire in this city for a formal training program. So, um, Rant and, Rant and I do a lot of the scholastic and theory side of improvisation and sketch comedy. And there was a lot of interest from people here in Ohio that actually reached out to us to ask us if we'd ever create a formal program since we had organized some training programs elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and anytime somebody talks about like uh, formal training and improv, that always seems like a, uh, a contradiction in terms to me. Um, <laughs> because, you know, formal, you know, you prepare ahead of time, but improv, you're not. However, I know that there's a lot of preparation that goes into being spontaneous. So yeah. tell me a little bit about the formal program and how uh, you train people to be spontaneous. You bet. I think the the main thing that happens with us is uh, is really breaking down the way people have been thinking for themselves. Because usually, when uh, when you grow up, when you go from age zero to however old you are, you're used to imagining by yourself. And with uh, with improv, you need to be able to imagine with other people together cohesively and kind of let your idea not be the be the only idea, but find a way to, uh, to mesh the ideas together. Yeah. This is a really collaborative art form and people are really drawn to that currently. I think that we've had, um, we've had a lot of interest in it. It's, it's, inter- it's interesting to watch this art form grow because people are naturally good at sort of playing, but we unlearn that pathway to play as adults. Uh, so a lot of the scholastic training of improvisation is getting people to re-engage in creative flow so it has a lot of correlation to, you know, uh, learning kind of this bohemian art method has a lot of a lot of benefits in the corporate world and the regular world and certainly performers that want to be professional performers. Um, a lot of that is about just unblocking these things that we've learned our entire lives and how to stop uh, collaboration with other people. Yeah. So it's it's a really it's a really cool art form for lack of better terms. We we. Um, in Chicago, the, the programs are formally about two years long. It's almost like a grad school length. Um, and a lot of that focuses on comedic theory and 
like we said, kind of engagement with other people and how to co-create an art, uh, both when it's funny or theatrical. And a lot of the people that aren't necessarily interested in being performers professionally are still really interested in just becoming sort of more engaged in their artistic side or just being generally happier is kind yeah. of what we've seen. A lot of a lot of happiness comes from this sort of play. When you send it to the corporate world to advertise it, you say, we're going to make your people happier and more spontaneous. Or uh, how do you advertise to the corporate world? That's, that's a great question. Yeah. I think that, that honestly, too much of it, for us, at least for us in our, our lives, hasn't been too much about advertising it because people are seeking it out. Um, mm-hmm. Currently, improvisation is or at least the training tenets of improvisation is probably the most uh, popular training tool globally right now, even over regular corporate training. So meaning that if you brought someone in for a conference, often uh, in the Midwest and beyond, there's a lot of people doing improvisation for their employees because it makes them naturally work together better in cohorts. So we've seen a lot of that um, happening and, and advertising hasn't been too much of a, in Chicago, <laughs> in Chicago, you could throw a rock and hit an improviser. So it's not, you don't have to advertise too hard. But here in Columbus, people are still finding their footing in what we would call applied improvisation, mm-hmm. which is the the scholastic sort of form of it that gets implemented into a workplace. So we'll kind of have to see, I suppose. We've had people reach out to us already. Yeah. What are some of the things you do, say, when you go into a corporate environment? Because it seems to me that that's a place where their stakes are so high with behaviors that it could be difficult to break down those sorts of sort of societally built up ways of controlling yourself that might not necessarily in my mind at any rate work so well with improv right Uh, i'd say the number one thing that we do is we take the expectations that are there and we take them away meaning uh, if you're at work and you're going to a work training there's already a certain air of i know what a work training is and uh we try to take out the seriousness or the panic or the fear uh, of anything that might be there. Fear of succeeding, fear of uh, lots of times once we say it's going to be an improv workshop, there's this fear that they won't be funny and being funny is not even important at all in the workshops. Um, so taking it and really setting up the, the structure ahead of time of we're going to do some stuff that might seem weird, but if we're all just doing it at the same level, then everyone's going to be fine with it. When you look back over your careers and you look back at uh, the time that you've spent to learn improv, do you feel like improv has changed you as people? Like you go back and you see people that you knew previously and do you do they say, oh, you seem different to me, not just because of the passage of the time, but because of the way that you respond to things differently than I might have expected? Yeah, I think your willingness to engage with other humans is really high when you start training in this art form and and people get really impressed that they're more they're more sort of up for it. I'm trying to find <laughs> a better yeah. phrase than that, but people become more playful and more interested in connection. And um, recently we trained a, a, a large group of corporate folks at an advertising firm, and one of the CEOs was there, and I think they were kind of nervous that he wouldn't be impressed by kind of, a, you know, a more silly sort of training And he was the one at the end of the workshop that said that he realized he had been saying no to all these opportunities and closing doors in his regular life. And that this kind of training had made him want to say more yeses 
that he had kind of lost engagement with his friends and family because he was trying to stay safe and compartmentalize his life and not bother anyone. And, and he said it came out when he went home one night that his uh, like three or four year old son had been asking him to read a story and he had been habitually just saying no because it felt like, you know, go to bed, like let's, let's, let's all kind of wind the day down. And one night after that class that we had taken or, or, or challenged him to, he went home and said, sure. And uh, said he connected with his family in a different way. And it was really beautiful. We get to see all these really cool human moments that you wouldn't think, it almost sounds saccharine to repeat them, but they're true. You see people come back to class and they're more alive. They're more excited. And all of our friends, if I may, I think also, all of our friends look younger. It's a weird, it's a weird kind of. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean they look younger? If I see, let's say I see a friend that's uh, both of our ages and one of them does improv and the other one doesn't. It seems like usually the improviser looks more awake. Uh, that they don't look as tired or, or uh, dragged down, I guess, is yeah. kind of the thing. And that's a really, I mean, obviously there's playful people also that still have that without the tenets of the art firm intersecting it. And that that's, they would fall into the good category too. But it's really nice to see so many people that engage in play or creation or, I don't know, just some kind of art form Right. Maybe sports, something that keep them like a lot that keeps them engaged differently. Um, we notice it all the time, and we don't have a good definition for it, but we've noticed it throughout our friend base that the people that tend to play more look younger. I assume that uh, when you you see me for the first time, you'll probably exclaim, "Wow, you've never done improv." <laughs> just just look at that. We can oh, tell that man, you have never. Perfect. On improv. One of the final things that I wanted to ask you about is you talk about um, the musical improv theater, and uh, you've got a sh the show here. Tell me how you maybe negotiate that just on a, a in a, like a brief way, because that seems to me to be one of the more um, difficult aspects of improv when I've seen people do it, because you have to juggle not just the words in your head, but the you know the tune, the singing. Um, if somebody decides to go off onto a harmony part or something like that, that seems um, really complicated to me. And this probably explains uh, makes clear that I cannot do harmony when I uh, sing. So yet, yet, Doug, it, yet it is difficult, <laughs> and uh, and. And we let, love the challenge. Tara and I have worked together for so long that there's, uh, we know each other very well. And we've, we kind of, uh, the, the way that the show here was born was an interesting way and in that it was kind of, we did it one time in Chicago and then we did it in the next, the next four shows were all in different European countries. And we, by design, because we, uh, because of our travel arrangements, we had to have them find a musician to play with us. <laughs> so, so not only are we making up the words, not only are we trying to rhyme and harmonize with each yeah, other to music, but we don't know the people who are playing the music for us pretty much all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's improv in its truest state for sure, because we don't know anyone involved, basically. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's something about putting going so far to the other side of comfort that makes it comfortable again of like, we're it's, there's not a lot that's going to happen in the show that, uh, won't be fearful, but we can ignore it and just attack it and see what happens. And that's what we do. And it's always 
fun and we trust each other and we trust the person playing the, the keys for us. And uh, if, if the music stinks, we do a lot of acapella. <laughs> and if, uh, <laughs> so it's like, we'll make a, we'll make the show interesting and enjoyable to watch no matter what uh, weird things happen. Yeah. We're lucky that we have a, a new musical director. We have a musical director in Chicago named Dave Asher. We have a new musical director here in Columbus uh, named David Schmall. And they're both incredibly talented musicians, and we've met a million, you know, many, many other musicians on the road. Um, and they're kind of our house musicians for each city. But a lot of it is just this kind of weird uh, ensemble piece where we don't know what the heck's going to happen tonight. And we're housing it at the Nest Theater every Saturday at eight. So if if it's if it's interesting to you, we're always willing to kind of unpack it with the audience after it's over. But the best compliment we can ever get is how much of that was improv uh, because yeah. it's, it's all improv, but no one really ever believes it. But it's a lot of, it is just getting the reps of doing it a lot and trusting each other even more so. All right. Well, that sounds like a great way to spend a Saturday night and uh, more information on that can be found at nesttheater.com. Tara Francisco and Rance Rizzuto, I thank you very much for talking to me today on craft and look forward to your success in Columbus. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Cynthia Rossi, and I'm grateful for Rilke right now. At the moment, it's very centering for me to read from his letters to a young poet about living the questions and loving the questions. I'm also grateful for literature um, like Jonathan Swift and being able to look back into time, reading his diaries about what it was like to live in Uh, London in the 1700s, living on mutton and wine and coal fires with bad doctors. So I'm very grateful to be living in today's society with all of the warmth that we have and the connection that we have and the opportunity for women and also just the opportunity to live long lives. That's what I'm grateful for. My name is Kathy Gender, and I'm very thankful for my problems. Compared to the crisis and heartbreak in the world, my leaking pipe, poor customer service, or construction traffic are gifts to be grateful for. This is Robin Smith. I am a professional researcher and writer and local history nut. Um, I have a long list of things to be thankful for this year. I start with the basics, my family, having a roof over my head and a job because so many don't. I have a wonderful circle of friends. I have a beautiful daughter that makes me proud of her every day. And as I get older, I begin to be thankful for things like the sun coming up every morning. Um, I'm thankful that I wake up healthy and able to learn something new about myself every day and do something kind for someone else. I'm Julie Moore poet and writing center director and dog lover. I am thankful for steady work in an enjoyable career as a writing center director and poet. I am thankful for gratifying volunteer work at Four Paul's Fur Building in Zenia, Ohio, and my foster puppy Katniss, who blesses everyone she meets, and she is sleeping right here at my feet. And finally, I am thankful for loving family and especially loving and supportive children. This is Artie Isaac, and I'm thankful to have recently learned just how much I don't know. I am grateful to be making the journey from buffoon to something better. 
I am thankful for my teachers. I'm Brad Feinkenoff, and at this time of year, I want to give thanks by counting my blessings, of which there are numerous. First and foremost, I'd like to give the greatest thanks that after 14 months of breast cancer treatment, the love of my life and beautiful and intelligent wife is cancer-free. I'm also thankful that to have two handsome sons that are both happy, healthy, and excelling in both sports and academics. I'm thankful to see my father reach the age of 80 and my father-in-law reach the age of 88 in the past year, both in relatively good health. I'm also incredibly blessed by my multitude of talented clients who not only respect me for what I bring to their projects and for what I do, moreover to allow me to create imagery for them through my profession that I love. I also have a wonderful staff who supports me every step of that way. I've been truly blessed at this Thanksgiving time and want to give thanks. Hi, I'm author Lucy A. Snyder and I'm first and foremost thankful for my friends this fall. My friends are great people, they've really banded together and I am really thankful for their fellowship and their love and their willingness to help each other out. That's a beautiful thing to see. The second thing I'm thankful for, and this is going to sound kind of trite, I'm thankful for modern technology. I mean, I'm able to talk to people around the world and, you know, stay in touch with people that back in the day we would just have completely lost touch. And the technologies that we have to enable the people to stay closer together are really amazing, and I'm very thankful for those. I am Larry Smith, the creator of the Six Word Memoir Project, a project that's very simple. For 10 years, I've been asking people to answer the question, how would you describe your life in just six words? It doesn't have to be your whole life, uh, though it could be, like the celebrity chef Mario Batali said, brought it to a boil often. It could be just a sliver of your life. A teen recently said to me, in six words, my life story is, I seriously love bean burritos. And the new book is called Six Words Fresh Off the Boat stories of immigration, identity, and coming to America. Myself, well, this may be more than six words, but I am very thankful to live in a community I love and doing work I love here in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, this is Kathy Fagan from the Ohio State University Creative Writing Program. And this holiday, I'm grateful for my mother-in-law's restored good health and for the warm arms of her second son. And now it's your turn to be grateful as we've come to the end of this hour-long version of Craft, a show that normally airs at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays on WCBE. I hope that you've enjoyed the interviews and the thoughts from people in the Central Ohio community about gratitude and being thankful. Questions can be posed at crafttheshow.com, where you can also post deep thoughts such as this one from a listener. Yeah, I like puppies. So by now, you may be thinking that you're already hungry for the next version of the Thanksgiving meal, the Thanksgiving leftover meal. Enjoy that and enjoy whatever you're doing today. And remember to have an attitude of gratitude that this Thanksgiving show only comes around once a year. I'm Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.